Well, good morning, City Church. It is so great to be here, and uh, what a privilege to be a pinch hitter today for your uh, star starting pitcher, uh, Amy. So I have a bunch of grandkids with Sandy, and uh, one of our grandkids, a daughter, sorry, granddaughter in, in kindergarten, she is hilarious. She thinks I'm hilarious, but she is hilarious. She loves to hear stories about when Grandma and I got in trouble. I don't know why. She's a little rule follower. The thing is that Sandy and I were such amazing children that we really never, ever got in trouble, so I don't have that many stories. Well, I have a few. No, actually, I've got quite a few. Like the time, for example, that my grandmother, I was about 12, set me to work helping get ready for Christmas. She had a pile of dates and some peanuts and a little bowl of sugar, and the routine was take a peanut, put it in the date, roll it in sugar, and put it on the tray. Okay, Grandma, I can help. So I've got about five or six of the little special sugar date nut treats squared away. And man, they were looking mighty yummy. So you can probably guess where this one is going. I had one and then put three more on the plate. And then I had another and put a couple more on the plate. And then I had a third and put one on the plate. And then I had two or three in a row. And by the time I was done, more than 50% of those dates were in me. And boy, I was just feeling bad. So my little granddaughter loves that story. There's also the story about the time that Sandy left and put me in charge in the kitchen. It was going to be frozen pizza, and I looked on the back of the box, and it said, you know, preheat to 350, take the pizza out of the box, put it on a cookie sheet, stick it in the oven, 20 minutes, you're good to go. Five minutes later, a non-pizza odor, aroma, not aroma, odor, stench started coming out, and I'm sure you can guess where that one went as well, which is, in my defense, it did not say on the box, as far as I know, as far as I remember, take the plastic off the pizza before you put it in the oven. All right, so my grandkids love that story as well. Well, I love to tell these stories to the kids. Uh, they, you know, learn a lot by it, and I think they think it's pretty hilarious that, that Grandpa got himself in, into big, big trouble. But really, I, I tell this story because it sort of indicates, doesn't it, that life in this world is never perfect. Life in this world is filled with trouble. In fact, Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. There's going to be difficulty in our lives. Right after God created the heavens and the earth, you remember he created a perfect garden. The trouble started almost immediately because Adam and Eve listened to the tempter. You remember the story. Next thing you know, their marriage is on the rocks. Adam and Eve are pointing fingers at each other. A brother, Cain, kills his brother, murders his brother, Abel. Within a couple chapters, the author, Moses, we believe, wrote this down. He, he is saying every action of every person was only evil all the time. It's like, holy cow, can't get much worse than that, right? Then government started to get in. The government thought, oh, we'll solve this problem. So they decided to sponsor an infrastructure project. Do you know about this? Yeah, they built this big tower. It was a tower that was going to get us back to heaven. You remember that story. Didn't work out so well. So God determined that he was going to work through and defeat this evil that had come into the world and set his creation back to rights. So God's plan, I'm condensing a lot of history here, God's plan was to choose people, choose a chosen people, and through them, he was going to resolve this issue that you and I are actually still 
dealing with today. His plan was to defeat Satan, to resolve the problems of sin, and to overcome evil in our world. So right from the beginning, God has a chosen people, and he said, I've got a job for you. I've got a mission for you. And God gave this mission to the people, kind of like Mission Impossible. This mission, if you choose to accept it, right? You remember that, right? So God gets this thing going, and he gives it to a guy named Abraham. This is only 12 chapters into the Bible. It's Genesis chapter 12, and he says, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to bless you, and then through you, I'm going to bless everybody else. This is kind of a two-part deal here. God is going to bless his chosen people, and through the chosen people, everyone else is going to be blessed. Now, God gave this to the Jewish people, and unfortunately, they only got about 50% of it right. If you read the rest of the Old Testament, what happens is they were really into the God blessing me part, and then the part about we're going to bless everybody else, that's where it kind of broke down. And so as the story of the Old Testament goes, it, it gets narrowed down to Jesus as the one through whom this blessing is going to happen. And you recall that Jesus rose again, died on the cross, rose again, and established the possibility of, of salvation for us. And then at the end of his life on earth, just before he ended his time, Jesus said, I'm going to pass a mission on to the people of God. And that's where you and I come into the story, because we're still part of the people of God who have received this mission for Christ. And so the upshot of that is, in this world, things are not going to go well. But God has given us a mission to work with him, to, to do his mission, really, but to set the world right again. Now, when we talk about a mission, what we're talking about often in an organization is a short statement. And this statement is an explanation of why we exist. It's our calling. It's like, this is what God has called us to do. It's the reason we exist. It's our purpose in life, you might say. It asks the question, what am I supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? Why do we even live here? Why does God put us on this earth? And the mission that God gave to Adam, or to Abram, rather, uh, to bless the world, that mission actually is still in force. And I believe that we, as the church, are still under that mission. And God is showering a tsunami of love and blessing on our neighbors and on us and on people around the world because this is the heart of God. The passion and heart of God is to show his love and to help them, help people come back to him. Now, you all know John 3.16, perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible, after the verse that I memorized to go to camp, which is the verse Jesus wept. But anyway... Other than that, you know that John 3.16 is perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, his one and only unique son. But the next verse, I think, is also really important. It's John 3.17, and here's what it says. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God did not send his son into the world to condemn, to judge, to convict, to criticize, to sentence, to attack. That's not the point. God sent his son into the world to save. Now, the reason I mention this is because if you do a little bit of research and you find out what a lot of people in America think about what we're doing as believers, the research would say that a lot of people 
um, think that we're not sending that message. That is to say, that message that God is not here to condemn, but here to save, that message isn't necessarily getting through because there are a lot of unchurched people, it's, uh, it, we find out, that are people who think that Christians are going to judge their behavior, judge their lifestyle choices, or maybe judge them for not knowing enough about the Bible. And so if you, if you do a little bit of research and you look to people like Barna, you'll find that there's quite a percentage of our neighbors who kind of think that's what we're about. So the, the mission that God has given us, our job as Christ followers, is to show and tell the love of God. But people that we're supposed to show and tell that to aren't necessarily always getting that message. Actually, they're hearing something a bit different, sometimes hearing judgment. And to me, that's a bit of a problem. Years ago, a young man from New York named Ken was a college freshman, and uh, during his freshman year, World War II broke out. So he enlisted, like everybody else his age, and the Army Air Corps said, we're going to have you fly four-engine bombers. They're called B-24s. So he learned how to fly this B-24, got sent over to Italy, was flying up over the Alps into places like Austria to drop bombs on uh, railroad yards and oil refineries and things like that. One day, the chief mechanic said, I'm sorry, but the last time you brought this, this airplane home, you got shot full of holes, and this thing is not flight-worthy right now, so we're going to have you fly a different airplane. It's a spare. we got a spare over here. You fly this one instead. Just by happenstance, uh, the spare happened to have bulletproof windshield. His regular airplane didn't. On that mission, Nazi fighters came flying right at them, directly into their nose, firing with their guns. And a bullet hit that bulletproof glass directly between the eyes, right in front of him. That was the only day he flew a bulletproof glass airplane. He had this sense, maybe my life has been saved for a reason. So Ken left the Air Corps after the war, went to college, became a Christ follower, married Jane. They decided to go to Japan as missionaries back in 1950. That's a long time ago. Their ministry helped uh, focused on high school students. And they were all about helping high school students understand the love of God and become born again, which means finding new life, a fresh start with Christ. In fact, they called their mission High BA, High School Born Againers. Kind of an interesting phrase. Now, this is Ken with a young man named Horiuchi-san, who was his interpreter. And the two of them would go around and preach and invite high school students to follow Jesus. Now there's a custom in Tokyo. After high school, graduates from high school would go back to their ancestral homes to pay respects to their ancestors. So if you had moved off the farm and into the big city, when you graduated from high school, you made this heritage trip back to the farm, back to the village. But by the 1970s in post-war Japan, people had become wealthy. And the high school students were like, I don't want to go back to a dusty little old town. I want to go somewhere exotic like New York. And then all of a sudden, somebody had a bright idea. Ken, you're from New York. Why not organize tours for these high school students? 
You could take them on a tour. You could take them up the Statue of Liberty. And along the way, you could do discipleship. Wouldn't that be great? So Ken faced a leadership crisis, actually. He decided, we are going to stay on mission. We're not going to organize travel. We're not a travel agency. That's not what God has called us to do. Heritage trips are great. There's nothing wrong with that. But we're not going to get into the travel business. That decision to stay on mission disappointed a lot of people. Because there are a lot of folks who thought, hey, this travel thing could be great. But staying on mission had an impact over the decades. 60 years later, Ken went back to visit. And a group of young men and women who were just high school kids in the early 50s gathered together for a sort of a memory event. And you can barely see there, kind of in the, toward the left and the front, there's Ken. And by the way, sitting right next to him is that young guy, Horiuchi-san, the interpreter from 50, 60 years back. Horiuchi-san ended up being a pastor his entire life. He's now in heaven. The decision to stay on mission means that this organization is still making, um, doing what God has called it to do. And today, their vision is to plant these clubs, these high school clubs, in every single county in Japan. It's incredible. Last week, Pastor Amy led us into Luke chapter 4, and uh, Jesus was beginning to preach about his own mission in the synagogue. You remember that? He quoted the Old Testament, said, this is what I'm going to do, and this is being revealed, and this is being launched right now. You may remember that the people didn't like it. He disappointed some folks. They actually wanted to run him out of town, and he ended up going to the next town, Capernaum, and in that town, here's what it says, Luke chapter 4, verse 38 and following. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon Peter. This was one of his new followers, the fisherman. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. And so everyone asked Jesus, could you help the mother-in-law? He bent over her, rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she got up at once and began to wait on them. So Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. By the end of the day, the people brought to Jesus lots of other people who had various kinds of sicknesses. He laid hands on each one and healed them. Moreover, demons came out. You see how many times demons figure in the early part of Luke here. Uh, Jesus is fighting against evil spirits. And the demons came out and they said, you are the son of God. And Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Messiah. The next morning, early in the day, Jesus went out to a solitary place, out in the boondocks. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And I have to do it with other towns. And then here's the key phrase, because that is why I was sent. Do you see this profound sense that God has called me to do something and I have to stick to that task? And so he kept preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So let's get the picture. Jesus is healing people right and left. Everybody's loving it. He's an overnight sensation. He's bigger than Taylor Swift. I mean, he is now big time. 
Early the next morning, people go out. Where are you, Jesus? The disciples fan out looking for him. Jesus, hey, what are you doing out here in the boondocks? Can't you see that everybody thinks you're great? Everybody wants you to heal. Man, you're the hottest ticket in Galilee. Wait, what? You're planning to leave? No, don't go. Stay here. People want you. They need you. You could have an incredible ministry. Just think of all the healing you could do. And that's when Jesus says, I have to proclaim the good news, the kingdom of God. I have to do it in multiple places because that is why I was sent. So this story, I must proclaim the good news because that is why I was sent. This story is really all about the mission that Jesus had. What it's telling us is that there is a why, a reason, a purpose, a rationale behind the presence of Jesus on this earth. There was an internal objective behind his coming. And here's the thing. I believe there's an eternal objective behind your being here on earth, that you have a purpose just as Jesus did. Jesus made it clear that he was doing something much bigger than just healing. He was going to die and rise again. He was going to show God's love. He was going to forgive sin. He was going to set the whole creation back to rights. He started this ministry. Jesus let everybody know that no matter what has happened to you or what you have done to others, whether you've been traumatized or you have sinned against others, Either way, you are loved, and I'm here to rescue you. Because God did not send his son into the world to condemn, but to save and to love. So while everybody begged Jesus to stay off, get off mission and do something else that was a good thing, remember healing is nothing wrong with healing, it's a good thing, but Jesus said, no, I'm not going to do that good thing, I'm going to do the one good thing that God has called me to do. People wanted Jesus to do their thing. Jesus wanted to be clear, I'm doing the Father's thing. So staying on mission is important. Just imagine if Jesus had gotten off mission. Just imagine, for example, that he became a healer and never died on the cross. Imagine that. On the coast of Massachusetts, near Nantucket, is a museum. This is a beautiful evening picture of this museum. This museum celebrates a volunteer organization that rescued sailors and ship passengers when storms blew their ships into trouble. So when the, when the ships were sinking, scouts would sound the alarm and volunteers would quickly jump into little boats, launch out into the surf, and go try to rescue folks. This little organization would build huts along the Massachusetts coastline. And I don't know if you can see that, but it says Massachusetts Humane Society, uh, station number 28. So there are these little huts up and down the coast. And you can see they have little boats along the side there. They're just ready to launch at a second's notice as soon as somebody spots a ship going down. 
This organization, the Massachusetts Humane Society, was all about saving people from the surf. They had a very catchy motto. Listen to the motto. You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. Okay, that sounds great. I'm signing up for that. I mean, that's an ad campaign that's going to pull them in by the droves, don't you think? Yeah. Well, for a while, the folks along the shore risked their lives to save others, and they did save thousands of people from the surf. But gradually, things changed. Somebody invented something called the United States Coast Guard. And after a while, the people in the Humane Society said, the Coast Guard, I mean, these guys are the pros. They got better equipment, better training, and by the way, they're getting paid to do this. I'm just a volunteer. So after a while, the Humane Society said, you know what, we're gonna let the Coast Guard do it, we're not going to do it any longer. Now, <clears throat> here's where it gets crazy. Because you'd think that if the Humane Society was no longer working to accomplish its mission, they would just like disband and go home. Wouldn't you think? Like there's no reason to exist anymore. But here's the crazy thing. They did not disband. In fact, the Humane Society continues to this day. It still has members. But here's the thing, the only thing they do is get together for fellowship. Hmm. Every month, they share dinners. Here they are inside the museum. They enjoy each other's company. They raise a little bit of money to rescue animals. But primarily, they just enjoy each other's fellowship. Here's the thing, they're not in the life-saving business anymore. To me, this is a tragic example of getting off mission because here's a group of people designed for saving others and they're not doing it any longer. Now, this has a couple of applications and the first applications would be for churches. As Amy said, I'm spending time doing a wonderful thing. I'm gaining more than I'm giving by far with the opportunity to hang out with pastors, uh, to help them, encourage them, to love them, pray for them, support them, and give them some guidance as they do their work. It's just been fantastic for me. But in the process of that, I've been looking at the churches of America, and here's what I found. Research would show that there are many good churches, maybe as much as 90% of our churches, that have gone the way of the Humane Society. That is to say, they're doing good things, like healing was a good thing, but they aren't necessarily on mission. They're doing good things, but they're no longer in the life-saving business. So that raises a question, doesn't it? And I'm a guest, so I can't answer this question. But it is a wonderful question and a challenging question for us to consider together does our church have this clear, shared sense of what God is calling us to do on mission? The second application may be a little more personal because I believe that <clears throat> uh, so many American churches are like the Humane Society and the question is, are we on mission? There we go. The second one is a little more personal and the personal question is about me personally. Many American Christians are like the Humane Society members, 
And the question is, have we each individually, personally, found the mission that God is calling us to? Because I really believe that God has called us to this earth for a reason. You'll find your greatest joy when you organize your life around that reason that God has put you here. Again, the research on this is clear. The happiness of life, the joy of life, the satisfaction in life does not come primarily from hobbies or from work or from entertainment, but it really comes from having a sense that you are doing what God is calling you to do. The research on this is quite clear. See, God didn't create us as individuals or bring us together as a church so that we could enjoy each other's company, primarily, though we do that and we should do that. But if the main point is for us to love each other as opposed to being on mission with Christ, that's called a social club. And God didn't create us for that. God created us to be lifesavers, to be in the role of pulling spiritual strugglers out of the surf. So this is a good kind of New Year's tune-up conversation to have with yourself. God, what are you calling me to do? God, what is my life about? Am I acting on the mission that you're calling me to? I want to do everything I'm doing for you. That's a great conversation just to have with yourself in the quietness of your own life. Well, today, Ken is still alive. He's 100 years old. He was born in 1923. He wears a World War II veteran hat whenever he goes to Walmart. All the young chicks notice it, which is kind of cool. They come over and they say, thank you for your service. And uh, he engages them in conversation. Last fall, uh, Ken, who works in a, or lives in a retiral center with Jane, she's 98, they go to a little Bible study, and the leader of the Bible study said, Ken, would you preach a little sermon for us next week? And Ken said, sure, be glad to do that. So I asked him, like, what did you talk about? And he said, John chapter 3, you must be born again. And I thought, he's 100 years old. He's still on mission. Someday, when I grow up, I'm going to be like Ken. And I hope you will be, too. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for your word, for Dr. Luke who wrote the story of your son, for the amazing story of Jesus saying, I have to stay on mission. That you've called me to something, I need to spend time getting clear on what that is, and I have to commit to that and say no to other things, other good things, that I might do your will. Lord, we are challenged and convicted, each and every one of us, by this message this morning. And I pray that you will give us the courage to look in the mirror and have that tune-up conversation with ourselves to say, what are you calling me to be and to do in this world? 
And for City Church, may you invite them, Lord, into a conversation together where they can stack hands together in the huddle and say, this is how we're going to fulfill the mission that you gave first to Abraham 3,500 years ago and then to Jesus 2,000 years ago and which is still relevant today. So may these truths go deep into our hearts, we pray, by your Spirit's power and grace. I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.